Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens. And as my listeners know, I love this city. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, you know, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? And on some shows, like tonight's, we host an episode about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us cover a range of topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, who had some interesting history here in New York, about half of them, believe it or not. We've talked about the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city. Actually, the, uh, there was a big women's suffrage enclave in Brooklyn in the 1860s and 70s. The history of different immigrant communities, including people who were brought here as enslaved people. We've talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've looked at the history of bicycles and cycling. We've looked at the history of punk and opera. We've looked at our public library systems. We have three of them in New York, not one, not two, but three. Of course, the greatest city in the world would have to have more than one or even two library systems. We've looked at the subway, We've looked at our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges, just to name a few. After the broadcast, you can hear our shows on podcasts. We're on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight's one of those special episodes where we're not going to focus on one particular neighborhood, but on an interesting theme, and that is public art. Art in public spaces in New York City. When it started being here, what is public art? When did it proliferate? And what kind of public art can you see today? We have three guests who are going to be on the show throughout the whole show. Uh, one of them is no stranger to Rediscovering New York. It's David Griffin. David is the special consultant for the program, and he's also a lifelong architectural enthusiast. David provides creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding, and his clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. He co-hosts a series called Room at the Top, which by coincidence, we have the other two hosts here tonight. Um, Room at the Top is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings and greatest buildings they are. David writes his latest blog, Every Building on Fifth, documents every single building on Fifth Avenue. Can you imagine that? Every single building from Washington Square Park right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. Our second guest is Jennifer Wallace. Jen is Director of Art and Co-Founder of Nascent Art New York. She helps clients acquire fine art by emerging artists for building lobbies, company offices, and leading hotels when she's not going around the city looking for public art. Jen has helped build Nascent New York from idea to notable art consulting firm working with brands including Marriott, Hyatt, Hilton, MetLife, National Public Media, Toyota, and Penguin Books. Jen is a curator and an art enthusiast and has produced dozens of exhibitions and events viewed by hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers, including The Unfair in 2014 during Armory Show Week and NYC State of the Art, the first ever art industry conference focused on New York City's artists. 
As an art consultant, Jen consults individuals and organizations on artists trending in the marketplace. She's also hosted her own web series called Art Scene, that's S-E-E-N, and often speaks on panels to discuss art and emerging artists. When not shaking up the art world, she serves as an executive producer at Mastodon Films. Jen lives in New York City with her husband and business partner, James, and their dog, Ziggy Starpup. Ziggy Starpup. And speaking of one of the people she lives with, I'm not talking about Ziggy, the third guest on our show is James Wallace. James is president and co-founder of Nason Art New York. His responsibilities range from client and artist relationships, HR, marketing, and strategic initiatives. He's well-traveled. He's a former Air Force pilot with advanced degrees in law and business. His very background and familiarity with a variety of industry puts him in tune with client needs. He co-founded an internet company, which he sold in 2011, and also co-founded film production company Mastodon Films. Besides producing and directing an award-winning feature-length documentary that played in theaters, he produced an online art series with almost 100 episodes. James loves seeing artists' careers grow and client faces happy. Well, I can't imagine a better panel and better guest to talk about public art in New York. Welcome, everyone, to Rediscovering New York. Thank you for having us. We're happy to be here. You're all most welcome. And it's a pleasure having you all. I've uh, not seen you in years. I used to go to your room at the top series, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little later in the program. Um, usually I like to get into my guests' business careers midway through the interviews with them. But with each of your businesses, I think it would help sort of stretch the canvas, maybe pun intended, if we talk a little bit about your businesses before we talk about tonight's topic, which is public art in New York. David, first to you, you've been on the program regularly, and our listeners know a lot about your background and how you got interested in New York's architecture and also art. Let's talk about landmark branding for a second. When did you start landmark branding? And was there a specific event or set of circumstances that had you start the company? Well, I started landmark branding in 2013. I had been working uh, in the art world, actually, for many, many years. I was a senior associate at Thomas and Associates, which was a very highly respected art consulting firm. We did everything from staffing to board management, to internal controls, publicity. Uh, I worked with Jerry Thomas, who is, uh, I think, one of the all-time greats in terms of uh, sort of creating professional dialogue in the art world in New York. Um, working with Thomas and Associates is actually how I met Jen and James. I met them through contacts in the art world specifically. Um, in 2013, I decided that I was going to launch my own business kind of on the side. I was still working with Thomas and Associates. And um, I, I developed a, a company that handled marketing and publicity for historic architecture. I had been writing freelance up until that time. And after the sort of financial crash of 2008, a lot of my freelance sort of resources dried up. They were unable to publish material from freelance writers. And I thought, I still really want to write about buildings. I want to write about architecture. I want to write about urbanism. Maybe if I transfer my skill set over to the actual world in which these things are developed, that could be useful. So from then on till this, I have been working, as you said, for brokers, for developers, uh, for design firms, for architects, um, a, a real kind of multiplicity of people. And also been able to work with uh, numerous of my art world contacts, including, of course, Jen and James, um, and just kind of develop that as well. Because, of course, I think, and Jen and James will probably agree with me with this, art is really part of how New York has developed. It's, it's not separate necessarily from architecture. It's not separate from public space. 
it is uh, this this kind of like overriding feature of things. So it's been interesting to be able to kind of take that up as a as a career point. Mm. Jen, are you from New York originally? I'm a Philadelphia native. Uh, I've been living in New York for 17 years. Um, you know, native New Yorkers will say uh, you have to have been born here to call yourself a New Yorker, but- uh, Not at all. Home is where the heart is. And anyone who's, who after, loves New York and lives here, they're New Yorkers as far as I'm concerned. After 17 years, I definitely feel feel like, like a New Yorker and, and my heart is, is definitely here. Um, Let's talk about your professional journey. When did you enter the world of art and the world of the business of art? Because they can be two separate things. One, you, one can be an artist, and then you can work in the business of art, actually helping to connect people who would appreciate or pay for it with people who create it. Sure. I, um, I moved to New York to uh, attend Pratt Institute and study art. Um, and, and while I you know, studied studio art, I always wanted to be on the business side of the art world. And so um, I, you know, met James uh, shortly, uh, shortly thereafter. And, you know, we, with James's business and law background, I expressed to him that I really wanted to be on the business side of the art world, but I didn't really see myself fitting at a gallery auction house museum, although I have a lot of respect for them. And, and James said, well, why don't we start an art company? <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's really how it started. It, it's evolved from its an initial form, but, um, but that's, that's how things kicked off back in 2007. Mm. James, you have an incredibly varied background, Air Force pilot, degrees in law and business, digital media, film production. Uh, share a little bit about your journey and how you came to, to the business of art and, and getting art connected with people. You know, when you read that back, I'm like, wow, that sounds really impressive. Who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, that's me. That's not that, it's not really that impressive. Uh, I mean, you know, coming to art for me was a, a natural thing, but also if you sort of follow my path, it might seem disconnected and unusual, but as the person who's lived it, uh, it seemed very natural to me. Uh, you know, back when I was a C-130 pilot, I remember flying uh, into Italy. And uh, in Italy at the time, I won't say what year it was because it was a long time ago. Uh, but um, I remember seeing a uh, canvas print of William Adolf Bouguereau's uh, uh, Birth of Venus. Mm. And I was struck. I was really struck. And then also during that time, I remember seeing uh, an abstract work that really had its first impact on me, which was a Kandinsky. And prior to that, I was one of those people who would say, you know, you know, five-year-olds could do this, you know, we, and a lot of people say that. And then when you see that first- Five-year-olds can uh, fly a C-130 or, or paint a band of canvas. Paint abstract work. And so oh, okay. I, I, I really, uh, you know, art has always been something I've been interested in. And then of course you meet the love of your life and, and then the rest is history. And the rest is history. Um, we're going to, I want to talk about your room at the top series, but I'm going to do that a little bit later in the program, because now I want to talk about public art in New York. Before we start talking about public art, I want to stress to our listeners that perhaps unlike other episodes of the program, um, in no way are we going to be able to give you anywhere near a comprehensive picture of art that's available to the public in this great city. There's just so much of it and so much history. So we're going to take uh, little colors of uh, what might appear in the corner of a canvas, to lack of a better 
uh, uh, analogy and try to and try to create as much of an image as we possibly can. Um, public art seems almost second nature. It's in so many places that we ventured to, on sides of buildings, at intersections, on sides of buildings. Um, it's almost everywhere. When would New York begin seeing art? This is a historical question. When would New York? When would New Yorkers? begin to see art in public spaces? Well, um, to be kind of frank, we don't, we don't really have a date for when public art was defined as public art in New York City. But if we're really going to interpret it very literally in terms of forms of art that people would observe in public, probably as soon as there was the first cemetery in New York City, because those often involved inscriptions, decoration, commemorative kind of um, images and so, so forth. Um, one of the oldest recorded works of public art that was not funerary in New York City was actually a statue of King George III that was dedicated on April 26th of 1770 in Bowling Green in New York City. Um, now, interestingly, this statue was not erected out of particular reverence for the sovereign because already at that time, people in the United, what, what would become the United States were not fans of King George particularly, um, but as a means of accomplishing another goal, dedicating a statue to William Pitt. Now Pitt had been instrumental in repealing the Stamp Act of 1766. Um, he was regarded as a hero and a friend to the colonists. However, it seemed improper to erect a statue of the king's advisor where no statue of the king existed. So the General Assembly of New York, which was the governing body under the British government, commissioned both statues. George III was erected in Bowling Green, and the statue of Pitt was placed at the intersection of William Street and Wall Street. So uh, the statue of King George was an equestrian statue. It showed him mounted in a heroic fashion. It was made of gilded lead. Um, it weighed quite a bit. It stood for six years. And then the Declaration of Independence was routed to a crowd of American troops and colonists. Um, they got kind of happy about things, as, uh, as people do. They marched to Bowling Green, where ropes were used to bring the statue down. Um, evidently, a Philadelphia paper reporting on the incident said that the lead in the statue would be melted down to create bullets for the coming war. We don't know if that was actually the case or not. We do know that, unfortunately, the statue of Pitt was demolished by British forces when they invaded Manhattan during the revolution. Um, they struck it down to symbolize their displeasure with the colonists and their supporters. So neither one of those have survived, but we believe that those may have been the earliest um, commemorative statues um, erected for public in New York City. So it was the Philadelphians who came and destroyed our first public art then? No, just kidding. Uh, yeah. So actually it's funny, the British created the first public art, but yet it was, uh, the colonists who destroyed one and the British who destroyed the other when they took down the statue of Pitt. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation and get into more of the history of public art in New York on this episode of Rediscovering New York. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, 
the weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock, every Thursday evening, the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back to our special episode about public art in New York City's public spaces or art in New York City's public spaces. I have three great guests, David Griffin, who's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding, and Jen and James Wallace of Nascent Art New York. Uh, David, moving on with the history of public art in New York, um, in the years after the Revolutionary War or some decades after that, when would New Yorkers begin to see more art that was outside and available to the public? Well, I mean, for most of the city's early history, as I mentioned before, uh, public art was really restricted to memorials and to civic bus when it wasn't engaged in cemeteries. Uh, This did change, however, with the development of Central Park from the 1850s onwards, which became a focus for a, a sort of a comprehensive arts program that continues in some part to this day. Um, Interestingly, one of the earliest works to be installed in Central Park was also one of the first works by an American artist to be installed um, in the park, John Quincy Adams Ward's Indian Hunter of 1866, installed in 1869. Um, It depicts a Native American hunter and his dog tracking prey, and this is kind of a seminal sort of moment for public art in New York City, because for one thing, the statue isn't commemorating a specific person it is illustrating a kind of a narrative type. It is sort of a romantic statue. In other words, it suggests a narrative. It's not, uh, in other words, it's not, this is general so-and-so and and this is what he did. It's sort of like, no, this is a type of person and shown making an activity that is kind of connected with the ancient past of our country. Um, It's notable for depicting a Native American in a very sympathetic light. That's not something that always happened during the 19th century, unfortunately. Especially the uh, 1860s, you know. But yeah. Particularly then. Uh, it was part of the movement that I sought to create work that was more sort of what we would call romantic era. And most people think of romance as being something that's tied into love necessarily, but romance actually means story. Uh, a romance is, is a novel, in other words. So romantic fiction, romantic 
statuary seeks to kind of illustrate a narrative. And so this is a piece of narrative art that probably was influenced by things like James Fenmore Cooper, for example, other romantic writers of the 1830s through the 1850s, 1860s period. And it really became a kind of a bellwether for how American statuary would develop. And it moved away from mere commemoration, the idea of the statue as being a memorial, to being the statue as perhaps an ideal, or the statue as illustrating something of kind of artistic merit or of, of interest in a certain sense, in a more abstract way. Is Indian Hunter still in the park? And if it is, where is it? Yes, it is at the very head of what is called the Mall in Central Park. It's one of the first statues that you see traveling from south to north on the Mall, heading towards the bandstand area. Ah, where there are also other, uh, there's other statuary. Numerous other statues. Mm. You know, one piece of urban landscape, sometimes functional, but also very artistic, are fountains. And there's a glorious one in the park. Yes, Bethsaida Fountain. 1873 at the terrace. It's near the center of the park. Uh, and the best known detail of the fountain is really the statue of the angel that surmounts it. Now, this is interesting in that it is the first work of public art in New York City that we know is created by a woman, the sculptress Emma Stebbins. Um, it's meant to depict the angel of Bethsaida as in the biblical pool in Jerusalem. And Stebbins said he she had the idea that the healing powers of the water in the park were similar to the healing powers of the biblical fountain. We have to understand that the Croton aqua Reservoir, the aqueduct, all those things were kind of being built at the same time. And New York was one of the first major cities in the world to have safe drinking water. And this was a very important thing. The fountain was there to kind of prove that New York's water was as pure as spring water and that was the kind of metaphor that Stebbins was seeking to kind of inculcate through biblical imagery. So the angel of the waters is actually blessing the water of New York City. And in doing so, she becomes a figure of health, I think, and kind of guidance and a sort of a symbol of the city as being a modern, clean and extremely civic minded place. Oh. And of course, New York, we still have some of the best urban water in the world. Um, was the Bethesda Fountain part of the original design of Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vaux when they designed the park? It was not. Uh, a great deal of what we know as Central Park now today, and which we absolutely love and cherish, was not part of the original Vaux Olmsted plan. Um, Bethesda Fountain was not. The terrace was not. Um, I believe, um, I don't know if the castle was, obviously, uh, Cleopatra's Needle was not, and the biggest thing that was not was the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was seen as a huge imposition into the original plan when it was first built through designs by Calvert Vox, no less. Uh, but then as it grew and grew and grew and grew, people were sort of saying, oh, well, this is taking over Central Park. There was um, one sort of a, a gag cartoon in the, uh, I think the 1920s, that showed all of Central Park covered by the Metropolitan Museum of Art except for one small courtyard labeled Central Park, right in the middle of it. <laughs> so it's not as if public art and public space have not always worked together that well. And uh, yeah, that Santa Terrace was seen by some as an imposition onto the original plan. Well, speaking of uh, fountains, uh, there's another beautiful fountain, although it's not as grand. Uh, it is a work of art. It's uh, the Untermeyer Fountain, also known as the Three Muses. It's in the northern part of the park in the conservatory gardens and people, uh, most people in the park have not seen it, but it really is something. Um, it's uh, the three dancing maidens depict three young women 
holding hands in a circle, and this is from some uh, from an, uh, someone who, who wrote about it, quote, whose dresses cling to their wet bodies as if they were perpetually in the fountain spray. It really is something to see, uh, although not as glorious as Bethesda Fountain. David, let's move to an island and something that the entire world knows of, but which for some may think more of as, as a symbol than as a work of art. Yes, the Statue of Liberty, um, titled Liberty Enlightening the World, located on what is now Liberty Island. Um, it was a gift, of course, from France and the United States upon the close of the Civil War. Um, what many people don't realize is that it was inspired by abolitionist sympathies in France at the time. The liberty that the statue is symbolizing is the liberty of African-American people uh, until recently enslaved in the United States, as well as the liberty of people coming to the country. Um, the designer, Frederick Auguste Bartolde, uh, modeled the figure after the Roman goddess Libertas. Um, it is 151 feet tall, and it stands on a stone base by the American architect Richard Morris Hunt, who also designed the main building, main hallway, I should say, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, that brings the monument to a height of 305 feet from ground level. It's almost uh, a skyscraper. <laughs> it is actually, it was actually considered a skyscraper by some people, um, including Rem Coolhouse in Delirious New York. He pointed it out as the only female skyscraper, quote unquote. Um, people being able to go up into the crown of the statue are what kind of make it, quote unquote, a building, as, uh, as it were. Um, when it was completed in 1883, it was the second largest intact statue in the world after the incredible Buddha of Lashan in China, which dates to 783, 1,100 years earlier. Um, it really is an engineering landmark as, as much as it is an artistic one, although I think it is a, a great work of art. Um, as I said, it qualifies the skyscraper itself by dint of its observation platform. Um, the second viewing platform around the circlet of the statue's porch has been off limits since 1916, when it was feared the German spies might be able to photograph naval developments in New York Harbor from the site. So. I'd like to spend a couple of minutes to talk about uh, public art that became prevalent through the construction of buildings or even complexes. What were some of the first examples of this and when did it become a trend? Well, I think that a lot of New York's great early skyscrapers uh, incorporated art in the form of statuary on the facade. So that was always kind of a, uh, an item from the 1880s onward. However, really, I think one of the first major developments potentially in the world at this, uh, at this level to incorporate a comprehensive art plan of sculptures, fountains, murals, base reliefs, what have you, was Rockefeller Center from 1928 through 1955 and afterward, um, which of course was designed by a consortium known as Associated Architects, which included people like Raymond Hood and Edward Durrell Stone, artists such as Paul Manship, Dean Cornwell, and Hildreth Meyer, um, the great muralist and mosaic artist, created this amazing kind of art deco environment of color and line that included, of course, the gilded Prometheus by Manship above the famous ice skating rink. And um, the ceiling mural by the great Mexican muralist Diego Rivera, titled Man at the Crossroads from 1933, which was subsequently destroyed by the Rockefellers when the work was suspected of containing communist messages. Um, one of the most striking works at Rockefeller Center, uh, in my opinion, is an early work by the great modernist sculptor and designer, Asamo Noguchi, 
better known for his sophisticated abstract post-war era work, which was very, um, very sort of about certain objects being cited in a way that suggested Japanese gardens. Um, the work is titled News. It is at 50 Rockefeller Center, right above the door, installed in 1940. It was the largest stainless steel base relief in the world at the time of its installation and weighed nine tons. It is the heaviest single work of art in all of New York City um, up until the present day. Uh, it's kind of unusual for being a figurative work by Noguchi. Most of Noguchi's work is very, as I said, it's very isolated, it's very abstract. Um, the, the base relief depicts a quartet of anonymous newsmen in pursuit of a scoop. It suggests the influence of Cubist painting as well as what were called the photodynamic qualities of the art movement that was associated with futurism. So it's really quite a marvelous thing. Hmm. Well, David, in a minute or two that we have left on our segment, I want to go um, to something more modern, but also keep on the building thing, and that's to go downtown uh, to, to Chase Manhattan Plaza. Uh, there's also public art there, but uh, a little bit different, but not so much different in that Noguchi also is responsible for a piece of art down there. Uh, the ties to certain buildings downtown and to Rockefeller Center are, um, they're quite explicit. It's the same type of man monumental kind of slab architecture. Um, it's meant for banking and finance clients. It's very kind of aristocratic in a way. Um, the, the piece that you're talking about, of course, uh, One Chase Manhattan Plaza, recently it has been rebranded as 28 Liberty Street, is an incredible collection of work. First of all, you've got the building itself by Gordon Bunchap, which really is a masterpiece. It's one of the greatest uh, post-war skyscrapers in the city. Um, brushed stainless steel, incredible lobby, beautiful proportions. Um, below there is a sunken garden by Noguchi. And then on the plaza itself, there is a great work by the French artist Jean Dubuffet, School of Paris, Four Trees, 1969-1972, uh, made from aluminum and covered in fiberglass and then painted with squiggles and loops. It's a very kind of refreshingly um, iconoclastic look at modernism, but situated in the plaza of one of the great moments of modernism. So you have the great verticals of Bunshaft's amazing building, and then you have this sort of squiggle of brush strokes, like a doodle almost, that's breaking it up and saying, no, 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 we have to play here too. There's something here that can offset this. So in a way, it's a very subversive work of art. And of course, Noguchi's Sunken Garden itself is a masterpiece of urbanism. All right. Well, we could go on and talk more about uh, buildings, but uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin and Jen and James Wallace of Nascent Art New York about public art, art in public spaces in New York City. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to... Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m. So tune in on Talk Radio NYC. You know you have it, the potential for a more rewarding life, a life that matters. 
But how do you get there? The answer is in a best-selling book by the coach of the successful and wealthy, Ken D. Foster. The Courage to Change Everything, Daily Strategies and Wisdom to Awaken Your Hidden Genius and Transform Your Life. With this powerful yet amazingly simple daily guide, your future is in your hands. You will be empowered to unlock your potential, bring out your true gifts, increase your wealth, and take your life and business to a new level. Get your life-transforming copy of Ken D. Foster's The Courage to Change Everything by going to couragetochange.us. That's couragetochange.us. Quite frankly, there's no other book like this. Imagine what your life could be like if you had at your fingertips the success principles to create the life you've always wanted. Are you ready to live your dream? Go to couragetochange.us. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back and you're back rediscovering new york and support for the program comes from our sponsors the mark myman team mortgage strategist at freedom mortgage for assistance in any kind of residential mortgage mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735 and support also comes from the law offices of thomas siaka focusing on wills estate planning probate and inheritance litigation tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317 you can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to the second half of the show, even though Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate, when I am not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, we're going to continue our conversation with our guest, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is also the special consultant for the program, and Jen and James Wallace of Nascent Art New York. Everyone, I want to talk about your Room at the Top series. Um, Talk about art. That's sort of in public places. It's inside, but it's also art. The name is simply divine. The events are divine. What gave you the idea for them? Well, um, I don't know exactly when. I I can't even remember when we started doing it, but it was a while back. And I just thought, having met Jen and James, they had so many great insights into uh, art as kind of this public sort of sphere. And I, of course, am obsessed with architecture. So I thought, well, what if we brought the things together and sort of created something whereby we began to tour buildings? When I first met Jen and James, they were doing a program in one of the great historic buildings on Wall Street, uh, which is now a building that's now, I believe, the Regent Hotel. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Um, But they actually did a program that was in the historic safe of a building that had been one of the huge bank centers on Wall Street. And I just was like, oh, this is amazing. And I thought we were listening to like lectures about art in an incredible architectural sort of space. 
And I thought there has to be a way to kind of keep this going because this is incredible. And the name, by the way, that's Jen and James. They came up with Rome at the Top. That was their, their, their um, invention. And then between our sort of, you know, just context, we were able to kind of spin together a program where we did go to some of the greatest skyscrapers, I think, in New York City. And Jen, you want to talk a little bit about the development of that? I mean, uh, you, you said our contacts. I think we're uh, the three of us are all surrounded by architecture and real estate. Uh, exactly. Who, who, you know, could, could not uh, want to explore New York City's most prominent landmark buildings anymore. Um, we're, and, you know, I, I love the way David described it because, you know, we, we started, I don't know if uh, earlier you recalled, Jen had mentioned that, you know, the business has pivoted. Well, that was one of the pivots. At the very beginning of, of Nascent, we were doing these events. And although they were well attended and enjoyed by all, they really didn't make a lot of money. Right. We loved them and, and they really were educational. And if there's one thing that New Yorkers love, it's getting to see spaces because it's like private and it's behind the scenes. And so there are so many prominent buildings. And as David said earlier, art and architecture come hand in hand. So getting to see a prominent building, a prominent historical building, you get to see both. And, and it was really great to, to create that series. And that does continue, uh, even though it's not core to the business, we, we continue to do room at the top as soon as the world reopens. And, exactly. Um, and and uh, David, obviously, as the resident historian, uh, would give these brilliant uh, talks and tours of the buildings we were in uh me and james might chime in about art here and there and then we hopefully you know finish with a great champagne reception on a high floor and it just doesn't get any better than that it really hasn't and we, we've had a chance to visit i think some of the greatest works of architecture in the world one wall street um we were the last people to actually get up into the penthouse and do a private tour of that we actually had the historian of the bank of new york lead us through. We had 40 people. We went to a private reception afterwards in an incredible apartment. We've done the Chrysler building. Um, we've done uh, the Woolworth building. We've done the General Electric building. That was through the file organization. That was the very first one we did, actually. So, um, yeah, so we're, we're looking forward to really getting back into it once, as Jen says, the city opens. We have our little targets, you know, we're, we're, we're rubbing our hands together in anticipation. And it's something that we've done like, you know, two or three times a year. And I think it's been really, it's been hugely valuable for me because it's sort of like an affirmation through Jen and James's connections in the art world and my own connection. But it's sort of like, you know, it's like sort of bringing people together and realizing it's not just about one thing, whatever that one thing is. This is a city where those things fulfill a purpose for people who just go to work in office buildings. Like people have the chance to work in an actual work of art in New York City. And that's not the case for a lot of other places. So. No, and I, I, you know, I'm really grateful to have to have been on on some of those journeys. And uh, I look forward to going again. Um, Jen and James, before we get to more recent public art, I want to ask you about an exhibition that you recently installed and curated. In fact, it's open today. It's in Brooklyn and it's called Not Another Second. Yes, Um we were uh, brought on by a company called Watermark Retirement Communities who just uh, redeveloped a, a historic hotel uh, in Brooklyn Heights. And um, they redeveloped it into one of the most luxurious senior living buildings out there. And as part of the programming for the building, they built a gallery space and they brought us on to uh, 
developed the curatorial programming for the gallery space. We started the uh, with an exhibition called Brooklyn Collected that shared Brooklyn artists so that the residents could see the, the artists all around. And the uh, exhibition, Not Another Second, opens today. And it's part of a national cultural campaign about LGBTQ seniors. And it features 12 participants and larger than life portraits and photographs of those participants. In addition, they incorporate uh, a multimedia approach. So there are these huge portraits made by a really prominent German photographer that they commissioned to create the works. Uh, and, and there's also videos that if you use your VR camera, they, they start up in the frame. So yeah, super we, cool. there was a, a augmented reality component that layers on top of the portraits on the wall where the, the interview with that person will come to life and tell you their story, which is really interactive, engaging and, and phenomenal. And for those uh, who aren't able to visit the Brooklyn Heights location, which it is open to the public, you have to make reservations online at notanothersecond.com because it's time slots because of because of COVID and social distancing, um, but they are accommodating in-person visits through March and they might get extended beyond that because of the overwhelming response. Um, but it's also all of the content launched online today as well. So if you go to notanothersecond.com, uh, all of the participants' stories and portraits are all live there today and you can uh, really be impacted by their stories. And I'm sorry, you probably should have said this up front. The, the, the real core premise is the idea of being your authentic self and when you're talking to lgbtq seniors a lot of these people have we were in the closet for decades maybe 50 years of their lives and hearing their stories of and and seeing these larger than life portraits you really get an intimate look into what that meant and and the impact of discrimination against lgbtq people uh over the decades well, I was really surprised to look at the exhibition online and the first portrait I saw was actually someone that I know, uh, Miss Pearl Bennett from Cherry Grove. Well, she lives in New York, but but I got to know her at Cherry Grove. And her story is amazing. Yes, yes. Um, back to public art. Um, I want to take a journey to the West Side and what is and visit what is perhaps the newest installment of public art, or should I say the, it's the equivalent of a gallery, and that's the new Moynihan Train Hall that just opened as part of Pennsylvania Station. For those of you who may not know it, a very brief history, when railroads were going through hard times and indeed going bankrupt, the Pennsylvania Railroad sold a magnificent train station, one of the most beautiful in America, for quote-unquote development. It got torn down, and uh, to some people at the time, something very beautiful got built on top of it, <laughs> Madison Square Garden. And uh, they thought there were some modern uh, niceties about the new Penn Station, but it's hideous, it's dark. And um, some time ago, they looked across 8th Avenue to that uh, uh, to a big post office, um, uh, what's called the Farley Post Office. And a decision was made locally in the state of New York, uh, uh, although there was some federal funds involved, to convert uh, that post office, which sits above the tracks, into a train hall. Actually, for the, for those uninitiated, you walk into it, you think it was a train station. It's not. It's just it's just part of a train station. But uh, what are some of the but it's 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 replete with amazing works of art. What are some of the greatest artworks that are that are in the Moynihan train hall and that people can see and in the light of day because the, the roof is glass? So uh, 
we are in the neighborhood and we had the pleasure of visiting these artworks on the 1st of January when it opened. So this is all very, very fresh. Um, the Public Art Fund, which is a major not-for-profit uh, art institution in, in New York City, was commissioned and invited by the Empire State Development Corpor uh, Corporation to orchestrate three major art installations. Um, one of them is a massive stained glass ceiling installation on the ceiling of the 33rd Street mid-block entrance, and it's by a pretty renowned artist named Kahindi Wiley. Um, you might know him for being uh, com also commissioned for the official portrait of Barack Obama. Um, and he, uh, and this work is entitled Go, and it's hand-painted stained glass, and it's depicting Black New Yorkers in poses drawn from breakdance. And uh, the, they're depicted in roles in the stained glass traditionally reserved for saints and angels. And instead, uh, he's depicting uh, these New Yorkers as unique individuals and they're attired in their regular street clothes. And Kehinde Wiley's really known for, for doing this, for uh, taking highly naturalistic paintings of black and brown people in environments and poses drawn from the classical Western art history. And, and for, for this piece, he really, you know, transforms the urban environment into a celestial dreamscape. Um, another, another piece that's in the train hall, um, it's a collection of photographs in the ticketed seating uh, weighted area, waiting area. And there are nine large scale photographic works featuring historical uh, photos from the original Penn Station that was torn down from 1910 to 1963. And it also includes, uh, as, a re as a result of the research surrounding the historical events, uh, this, these photographs are by Stan Douglas. Uh, he restaged and recreated the historical events with live performers in period costume. And then he combined those images with the historical photographs to create a revived sense of history. Uh, so that's a, a really amazing set of photographs that, you know, sets the stage for a grand theater for all the human dramas that happen uh, in, in the, the, the train hall. And, and kind of lastly, the last kind of masterpiece of the new Moynihan train hall is a, uh, another ceiling installation kind of opposite the building from the Kenton B. Wiley ceiling. Uh, it's on the uh, ceiling of the 31st Street mid-block entrance, and it's by an artist duo uh, who lives and works in Berlin called Elm Green and Dragset. Uh, Michael Elmgreen and Ingar Dragset, and it's a one to 100 scale model of a fantastical version of a global metropolis. Uh, so it's a fictional city uh, with landmarks from Chicago, Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur, uh, London, Paris, and of course, New York City. Um, and the work is titled The Hive, and it's really a link between natural and human built sculptures and and it's this beautiful sculptural uh city hanging down from the ceiling that's illuminated from within and it's it's really striking and breathtaking when you enter through that entrance it, it really is a showstopper and people literally stop and stare it's an upside down cityscape uh, made of like a, a sort of a high gloss metallic uh buildings and and it's gorgeous if if you're in the new train hall and you see people looking up you found these works of art <laughs> 
Well, I'll have to have a chiropractic office right off the <laughs> part of the, to, you know, to help people with uh, their neck pain yeah. after that. Uh-huh. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation on public art in the city's great spaces. That's New York City's great spaces. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. You're back, everyone, to Rediscovering New York and our episode about public art in New York. That's great works of art in public spaces. I have three wonderful guests, David Griffin of Landmark Branding and Jen and James Wallace of Nascent Art New York. Um, Many of the neighborhoods on this, many of the uh, episodes on this show focus on neighborhoods. There's a very unusual piece of public art in a neighborhood that's become transformed in the last 20 years. I'm talking about the Meatpacking District. Um, do you want to talk about Tom Fruin in Gansvoort Plaza? I have been for a while a big Tom Fruin fan, so I'm excited to talk about this piece. It's a temporal uh, installation, so it's on on view from now until uh, the end of April. And uh like you said, it's in Gansevoort Plaza, which is uh, between 9th Avenue and Gansevoort Street. And Tom Fruin is a Brooklyn-based sculptor. He's internationally known, and he's known for these uh, stained glass artworks. You may have seen uh, his stained glass water towers around New York City in the past. And this installation is called the Bambora House, um, and it's in the shape of a house. And uh, it looks different from day to night. Um, because what happens at night is it gets illuminated and the stained glass multicolor uh, lights are projected all over the plaza. 
Um, and this is actually an interactive artwork and you can interact with, and I believe direct the light, uh, by texting a phone number, um, that's displayed in the, uh, in, at the, at the site of the work, it's three, four, seven, three, two, eight, two, six, three, six. I guess you could control it when you're not there. I think they have a, <laughs> a live stream too, cause, uh, the phone number is just public. Um, and this was, and quite- I hope that's the right number. Otherwise, I was be like, why is everyone texting me green, red, blue? Um, and, um, this was put on by the public art fund and the New York city department of transportation. Um, and it's a depiction of home and it's a suggestion to kind of look at our own surroundings with a fresh perspective. And that's really the intent of, of this installation. Let's talk about the public art fund. You mentioned it. What is it? When did it start? What does it do? So uh, the public art fund is one of, is probably the largest, if not one of the largest nonprofits in New York city focused on public art. Uh, they were founded in 1977. Uh, the founder, Dorsey Friedman, was actually uh, the city's first director of cultural affairs, which has become a very prominent uh, department within um, the government and within the art world. And since their founding in 77, they've had over 500 plus artists ex- exhibitions and projects throughout uh, all five boroughs. Um, one of the ones, one of the ones that I uh, uh, really loved that you sent me a link, I hadn't seen it was Erwin er- Verm's hot dog bus, which was in Brooklyn on the waterfront. And it really is a piece of public art because, you know, if it's, if something's commercial, if someone creates something to sell something, then it's, is it really public art? Is it commercial art? But well, they actually gave, gave hot dogs away. So there was no cost to actually eating them. Absolutely. Yeah. We covered that in our, in our web show art scene. And that was actually two summers ago. Um, the public art fund put that on as a temporal installation. And uh, we brought uh, Ziggy Starpup, who's half wiener dog with us to go uh, eat some hot dogs. At so. the wiener bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's like public art that you can eat. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, but no, that was a lot of fun. Mm. Let's talk about murals for a moment. There's a moving new mural in the East Village of uh, uh, a very important person who recently died in the United States. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, new mural of RBG Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Lower East Side, and that was part of the Lisa Project. Uh, the Lisa Project is a mural program uh, focused on the Lower East Side that. Um, it puts together ongoing mural programming and that's, that's their latest edition. And I think it's very timely and, and relevant and it's, it's really vibrant and, and brilliant. Well, let's go to an outer borough for uh, a couple of minutes. In fact, an outer borough uh, Rockaway, which is the only part of the city that's actually adjacent to the Atlantic ocean. It has beaches that are on the open ocean itself. There's a giant mural on the ground there. What is it? It's actually on a uh, playground and, um, hold on one second. <laughs> it's uh, by an artist. Sorry, we hate dead air. <laughs> uh, it's it's, it's actually, human dead air. I know. Yeah. It's, um, she's a African-American artist and it's a, uh, entire playground i think it's like a basketball court as well and it was commissioned um and it's really striking and vibrant and it's it's abstracted uh white marks on the black pavement and there it is it's chantel martin i was totally frank uh, okay 
Chantel Martin, and it's near the new uh, Rockaway Hotel, and it's used by like over 700 students all the time. So oh. that's what's really great about, you know, public art is, you know, people who aren't necessarily expecting it get to engage with it and benefit from it every day. And I think these students are a really great example of that. And it's a 16,000 uh, square foot mural. So it's, it's wow. huge and, and really impactful. And it's on the, on the playground of the Waterside Children's Studio School. Let's talk about art dedicated to the written word and specifically poetry. What and where is Poetry Path? That is in uh, um, the uh, down, downtown in um, Battery Park City. And the, uh, the Poetry Path is an immersive installation that includes more than 40 poets at the northern northern length of Battery Park City. Um, and the works of the poet, po- poets with have themes of relationships between people and nature and the urban landscape and are reproduced on, on benches and banners and pavers and pathways and signs. Uh, and the installations up through the end of this year. So mm. it's really engaging and interactive. Wow, there's so much art to talk about, so little time. We have to go in a couple of seconds, but one other thing I want to ask you about, uh, Lightyear in Dumbo. Sure, yeah. Um, You know, since uh, 2015, Dumbo has had these amazing outdoor video art installations, uh, and, and it's 65 feet by 40 feet. And so even in this era of social distance and a pandemic, uh, they're still doing them so you can see them and, and still enjoy public art that is uh, timely and temporary and, and an event. Uh, it's projected on the Manhattan Bridge and it's the first Thursday of each month and each installation lasts about 30 minutes uh, and is viewable from dusk to about 10 p.m. 10 p.m. And it's put on by the Dumbo Business Improvement District or BID uh, and the NYC Department of Transportation. You know, anytime you, you can break the monotony of sort of the everyday humdrum life and, and enjoy public art, like that's what we really get excited by, whether it's, you know, in our regular work or just out and about. There's just, it's it's so surprising and so great to see people reacting to these things. And with activities limited these days, this is a really fun thing that you can just do and engage with. You can only binge so much streaming content. I mean, come on. Yep. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Every now and again, you just need to get back to the idea that people have actually made something that's worth seeing in real life. All right. Wow. You know, we were, I was concerned that we might not uh, have enough to talk about, but you know, here we are the end of the program and we were just getting started. Um, I want to give a hearty thanks to David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David's the show's special consultant. Uh, Jen and James Wallace of Nason Art New York. Thank you so much for your first visit to Rediscovering New York. I uh, hope to have you back on the program before too long. And uh, I look forward to Room at the Top when it's, uh, when it's back, back in swing. Totally. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for having us. And we'll be happy to come back anytime. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. 
One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Emily Schulman. Our special consultant is David Griffin, one of our guests tonight, David's of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military, politics, all around what makes a great leader the personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.